four score and seven years ago. Those are some of the most famous words in American history. Most of us know that President Abraham Lincoln spoke them in, in what is now known as a Gettysburg Address in 1863 at the official dedication of a cemetery for men who had fallen during the Battle of Gettysburg. And most of us know that Lincoln was referring to 1776 and the Founding Fathers who wrote the Declaration of Independence. But why did Lincoln mention that year and that event in the very first line of his speech that day? This is one of the questions that Lucas E. Morrell answers in a short but illuminating 2020 book, Lincoln and the American Founding. In a time when some Americans are vandalizing statues and other artistic representations of the Founding Fathers, and even some of Lincoln, and going so far as betraying the man, portraying the men of the founding generation as villains, Morell's book is vital reading. Morell tells us which of the founders Lincoln particularly admired, why the Declaration was of greater import to Lincoln's political thinking than the Constitution, and how Lincoln turned to the Declaration again and again throughout his adult life as ammunition is argumentation and as a source of personal inspiration and aspiration for the nation as a whole. Morrell also brings into focus long-ago debates, such as that over the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, and explains why Lincoln was so reluctant to declare himself an abolitionist, but also why he was adamant that as a newly elected president and head of the quite new Republican Party, he could not make any concessions to the secessionists. Morrell makes the case for Lincoln as master, master logician in his debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858, as Lincoln tried to persuade his fellow white Americans that not, that not only was slavery unjust, but that it was an unsustainable foundation on which to base governance in any part of the growing nation. This is a gem of a book by a scholar for a general audience in need of an understanding of how the founders influenced Lincoln and thereby all of us. Give a listen. Hello everyone, my name is Hope J. Lehman and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Lucas E. Morell about his 2020 book, Lincoln and the American Founding. Thank you for joining us today, Lucas. Before we begin, I understand that you've had a a, a nice bit of good news recently in your professional life. Could you tell us about that? Oh, thank you, Hope. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Um, yeah, I was uh, given the nice honorific on July 1 uh, as the John K. Boardman Jr. Professor of Politics. I was promoted to full professor several years ago, and I'm also head of my department, but um, I've been promoted. Again, it's an honorific, but I hold this uh, endowed chair now, which is helpful because it helps me do um, helps support my research. And it also is a way of, of honoring uh, the work I've been doing now for 21 years at Washington and Lee University, bringing Lincoln to the land of Lee. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful way of putting it. Good for you. That's, that's, that's charming. And you are a very busy man in, in terms of your administrative duties, as well as your scholarship. And you're quite, quite well known in the, in the Lincoln Studies community. And I'd like to ask you, how did this particular book came to come to be? Whose idea was it? And was there no other treat, no other concise treatment of Lincoln's thinking about the founders? What does yeah, your book do in that. particular add? That's what I'd like to ask because there's a huge Lincoln literature as we know. Yeah, uh, probably you know next to Shakespeare, Jesus, and Napoleon, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the, just the, the the books and articles on Lincoln uh, proliferate like tribbles. Um, there is no systematic <laughs> treatment of the subject that I take up in my book. Uh, is props that right? to my, not even not even a long one. No, and as I say, what systematic treatment. A few years ago, Richard Brookheiser, great uh, biographer of many mm-hmm. pivotal figures of the founding, especially his book on George Washington. I use it every year in my American government class. Mm-hmm. He wrote a biography of Lincoln called Founders' Son, Founders plural possessive, 
And he, he makes a, a similar case with regards to the impact that the founders had on Lincoln. But mine is not a biography. It is a, it is a work that systematically walks the reader through the most important founders and founding documents and institutions that shaped Lincoln's political theory. Uh, and political practice. I was asked by Southern Illinois University Press to write a different book. They have a series called The Concise Lincoln Library. And it was um, cre- or envisioned or created to celebrate uh, the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. So beginning around, I guess, 2000 or so, um, it uh, had works like Lincoln and Religion, Lincoln and what was known as the U.S. Colored Troops, the USCT, Lincoln and Native Americans. They even have Lincoln and the Environment. Well, they asked Lincoln me to and write, Humor, I think, right? Lincoln and Humor, which was which was published last year by Richard Carradine, a great uh, historian of American, a uh, British historian of American uh, religious history. Uh, but it is a fantastic read, and, and no, no one less than Michael Burlingame, the great dean of Lincoln Studies, called it the best book on Lincoln last year. Period. Even though it's a it's a primer, right? It's an introduction, a scholarly introduction to the subject. Well, they asked me to write a different book. They asked me to write a book on Lincoln and civil rights. Now, I teach a, a, a seminar on Lincoln, and I also teach a seminar on race and equality. So I'm something of an expert on civil rights. I also teach constitutional law. But I didn't want to write a book on Lincoln and civil rights. I, I thought it was way overdue to present to a lay audience from a scholarly perspective in less than 125 pages between the boards, a, a, a clear, concise, but comprehensive account of what it was specifically that Lincoln learned from the American founding generation. And that's what uh, I told them. I said, hey, I don't want to write this book, but what about this book? And they're like, hmm, interesting. Send us a proposal. <laughs> and several years later, lo and behold, I actually got the thing done. Well, I can I can say amen to the fact that you say systematic because I really felt as I was reading it that I was working through in a very systematic, scientific way what what the founders meant. I learned a lot about the founders that I didn't know. In addition Yay. to <laughs> yes, I, I was in fact I felt here I am at fifty seven. I thought if only I had read this thirty five, forty, fifty years ago. <laughs> okay, so but I thought uh, I read I, it. I, that's great to hear because um, I I guess the short version is. If you want to know the founding, next to actually reading the founders, their best teacher, not the, 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 the person they learn from, but the person who teaches the founding the best next to them is Abraham Lincoln. To know Absolutely. Lincoln is to know the American founding. Yes, when you in your book you even say that that next to there's a line I think I've, I've got in my in my was going to ask you that question about he said you said that next to having Thomas Jefferson or the Second Continental Congress just explain what the Declaration of Independence meant. The best thing is the next best thing is Lincoln to explain it. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, so good, for, um, good for you. Yeah, well, that's that's my hope. And as I say, I'm I'm still waiting to see the reviews. If the if the reviews are bad, I need to find another line of work because this is all <laughs> I've been doing for a quarter century. I'm sure they'll be I'm sure they'll be complimentary to the map. So <laughs> I I was really I was really pleased with it. In fact, I bought it. I have two copies as a gift to to an, a, a sibling. So um, now, uh, in terms of your expertise, one thing that struck me that comes across in in your book is is what it, what an expert Lincoln was because I I knew that he was a great man. I knew he was a great uh, moral leader, but I didn't realize, and I should have known, how brilliant he was as a as an analytical thinker. 
And one one thing that struck me in your your portrayal of Lincoln was how meticulous and how shrewd he was in parsing out the weakness of Stephen Douglas's arguments for popular sovereign, sovereignty. And one 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 other thing is I'd like to ask is could you explain what in this context of Stephen A. Douglas or in general what pop, popular sovereignty meant? And was was the impression at the time that Lincoln was just making mincemeat of Douglas, or did people treat them as equally equally um, convincing and persuasive? And also the fact that did they 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 themselves they didn't have staffs the way modern presidents or modern presidential candidates as Douglas later became have they were doing this themselves more or less is that correct? Yeah, um, that's a very good question and involves a little unpacking. So I'll start with uh, the easiest or briefest thing, which is what do we mean by popular sovereignty mm. and how could there actually be a debate over it? And there was. Uh, what Stephen Douglas, who was the leading Democrat of the 1850s, far and away the most important person on the planet, at least in America, with regards to the development of uh, American political history. He was the um, a senator from Illinois, uh, the chairman of the Committee on Territories in the Senate ran for uh, president in 1856, and then, of course, was the Northern Democratic uh, candidate for the presidency in 1860. Odds on favorite to become the next president of the United States because James Buchanan had pledged to serve only one term. Problem was that the, the Democratic Party split apart, <laughs> and that really paved the way for the Republicans and led to Lincoln's election. Anyway, um, Stephen Douglas championed what he called popular sovereignty, which we really need to append an adjective in front of that, local popular sovereignty. Hmm. Popular sovereignty simply means the people rule. They are the, you know, they reign. What I mean by local and what Douglas meant by local is he thought that on most issues that deal only within the confines of a territory or a state, the local settlers, the local citizens should decide that issue, including slavery. And this became a bone of contention in 1854 when Stephen Douglas thought, hey, why don't we take slavery off of the national table? It's driving us apart. Why don't we let the people who are actually in the territory of Kansas and Nebraska decide whether they want slavery or not and not have Congress tell them, no, 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 you can't make this decision for yourself which is what they had told them all the way back in 1820 in the Missouri Compromise when we let Missouri come in above the 3630 parallel with slaves. But in the remaining territory above that 3630 parallel line, the territories that included Kansas and Nebraska at the time known as the Nebraska Territory, we said no slavery in that territory, in that remainder of the Louisiana Purchase Territory. Well, 34 years later, 33, 34 years later, Douglas thinks, why don't we split that territory into two and let the locals decide the matter? Lincoln thought that was a violation of, of the faith of the country, longtime precedent, and of course, takes us off the road to putting slavery on the course, as he called it, of, of ultimate uh, extinction. And that's what really brought Lincoln back into politics after he left it for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part after his one term in Congress, 1847 to 1849. What's interesting about Stephen Douglas, you asked, um, you know, from our modern viewpoint, most of us are fans of Lincoln and not Stephen Douglas for a number of reasons. One of them being Stephen Douglas is a, is a categorical and rank white supremacist. And I would argue that Lincoln is not. Um, some people push back against that. All right. We can have that conversation. Uh, but it, it, we kind of think that or naturally feel that, well, Lincoln obviously was the master debater. He's such a, as you put it, shrewd 
and and smart and logical thinker. Surely he was just taking Douglas apart. Well, we have to remember, for one, Lincoln did not win the debates with Stephen Douglas, if you will. Douglas was reappointed as senator in January of 1859 after their uh, nation, um, not nation, but after their um, uh, nationally known debates in 1858. Um, um, it, can it, I just remind, remind listeners that at this point, it was not, that, that senators were not popularly elected, so it was more correct. a political the point, I mean, it was a machination so, within the Illinois legislature, right? Yes, that's right. So when they actually um, arranged for debates in 1858, they essentially, in fact, the Republican Party, at which Lincoln was the head in Illinois, basically turned the fall elections in Illinois, the state elections, into a litmus test on which party should have the majority in the state house in Illinois and therewith who would be appointing the next senator. And so in January, I think the vote was 54-46. It went strictly according to um, party lines. The Republicans voted for Lincoln and the Democrats voted for Douglas. There might have been one or two who voted for uh, Matson. I think his name was. Um, I think that, but no, actually, I think they all voted for Douglas. But the long and short of it is that Douglas was reappointed in uh, January of 1859. So popular sovereignty, it, it seems like, well, how, who would disagree about that? But Lincoln was trying to explain to the country that for the people to rule, that means you have to understand why they have the right to rule, which means you have to think about the basis for rule or consent, and that is human equality. And so uh, it's hard to tell from our modern, you know, from our modern porch who was more persuasive because we didn't, the only poll we had was the, the polling booth. So statewide, uh, my good friend Alan Gelzo in his book, um, on the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he demonstrates that the Republicans actually did poll better at the state level, but for a number of reasons, the Democrats, uh, uh, not all the Democrats were up for re-election. For example, in the state Senate, more Democrats held their seats than Republicans. And for a number of other reasons, including, um, uh, uh, you know, by the late 1850s, more citizens were located in Northern Illinois than Southern Illinois. And so you had a lot of wasted votes as it were. So in terms of reapportionment, that hadn't happened yet. So long and short of it is, even if the Republicans were in the majority at the polling booth in the November, more Democrats um, remained in power and therefore were able to keep Douglas uh, in, in power. The interesting thing or what makes their rivalry so interesting to me is you had two individuals who respected, greatly respected the American founding. Uh, we, we lived at a time uh, in the 1850s, in the mid-19th century, where if you had the founders on your side, that was all, all that you needed, right? You wanted to wrap yourself in the mantle of the founders, unlike today, where the founders are very, I mean, it's the F word for some people. Uh, it's a very controversial thing. You know, Hamilton, the, the, the musical notwithstanding, <laughs> the founders are under attack. Um, the founders didn't come under attack until the Civil War, <laughs> Uh, if you will, um, uh, by some uh, secessionists and rebels. Uh, Lincoln, with Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, essentially Lincoln made the founders a point of debate or contention. They both respected, revered, and claimed that their political principles and policies were drawn from the founding, but they didn't draw the same conclusions. And so in those debates, and Lincoln had been debating Douglas about this throughout the 50s, in those debates, what you were actually seeing were two alternative renderings or interpretations of what the founders intended by this federal constitution 
and what they intended in particular for slavery in the in uh, the the near and the long term. And you just had a flat out dif- disagreement between the two. Which interestingly enough, if I can add one thing real quickly here, um, Lincoln did not believe in the 1850s, late 1850s, especially in 1860, that the greatest threat to the future of the republic was slaveholders. He believed the greatest threat was Stephen Douglas, a man who represented a free state and did not personally own slaves. Why? Lincoln actually used the word insidious. And in, at this point in time in his career, he didn't throw words like that around very loosely. He was very careful. He's a lawyer. But he said the problem with Douglas and his insidious doctrine of, of popular sovereignty is you will produce the nationalization of slavery without actually having to defend the institution. All you have to do, and this is what Douglas was doing when he said, hey, you in Illinois, shut up about slavery. Just let the settlers decide it way out in Oregon or California or Nebraska or or Kansas. All you have to do is persuade white Northerners not to care. This was a so-called don't care policy, as Lincoln put it. Just teach white Northerners to become indifferent to what will happen to people who do not look like them in another state or another territory. All you have to do for slavery to spread is to tell those people who aren't enslaved not to care. And Lincoln thought that's insidious, that slavery could expand without you actually having to make a case for it. Lincoln thought we have got to nip this in the bud, which is why, strangely enough, in a state like Illinois, where black people could not vote, he stood up time and again for the natural rights of blacks. That in this fundamental respect, Lincoln said, they are the equals of me, of you, Judge Douglas, and every living man. Well, I, I would like to quote from your book, actually, on this point of, of his, his, not just his impatience from a political view, political standpoint that Douglas was standing in Lincoln's way in the Senate, but he was morally, and, and as a logician or a, a, a man of reason, he was offended on a deep level by, by that, and you're right, um, his disgust with Douglas's indifference towards slavery was not simply because slavery was obviously wrong, but also because its, its expansion would not require a positive argument. You're right. The default that, that, that Douglas was offering, well, was, you know, it, it, they'll just decide when we get there. But yes. uh, And also you're right of Lincoln's customary appeal to the founders for guidance on the slavery question. I'd like to ask, was he guilty of whitewashing on that score? Was he was Lincoln historically correct, or was Douglas was there any historical validity to Douglas's view, or was Lincoln uh, correct? I mean, because Lincoln was basically saying because Lincoln didn't have the access to the historical record that that you, that you do at this point. Was Lincoln sort of um, in his in his in his here in his 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 admiration for the founders was he was he correct that there that they did feel that slavery was on its way to extinction or were they just trimming the way Douglas was? Um, I th- I think it, it's fair to say that Lincoln um, using the sources that were available, for example, Madison's notes on the um, the Constitutional Convention, those became public after he died. He insisted that they remain. Um, uh, he gave a copy to Washington, and those were eventually deposited at the Library of Congress, if I'm not mistaken. But they were under strict instructions not to make them public until Ad- uh, Madison's demise, which I think was in the 1830s, 1835 or, or thereabouts. Um, he, he also had uh, available Eliot's notes on the debates. 
We had the, some writings, uh, in fact, many writings of, of Thomas Jefferson, who, of course, was not at the Constitutional Convention, but he read Jefferson and, of course, uh, Washington's speeches. I don't know how much of Washington's correspondence was public, but certainly his speeches were. So um, uh, Lincoln, although there's no evidence that he read the Federalist Papers, interestingly enough, he did read yeah. Madison and, and cites Madison, um, and, as well as, of course, Jefferson and Washington. So Lincoln was was uh, well read enough on primary sources to get a sense of where the founders were on the subject, especially of um, the future of slavery. Now, Lincoln's not an idiot. Um, there are yeah. things about Jefferson he liked and publicized and emphasized, and there are things that he was studiously quiet about. For example, um, Jefferson was quite uh, uh, public in uh, arguing for the expansion of slavery counterintuitively enough as the way for slavery to go uh, the way of the dodo bird. In other words, he thought if you keep slavery um, uh, restricted, that means the, the the black population would outnumber the white population in terms of you know um, birth. And so over time, it's going to be less likely that whites are going to free slaves uh, black slaves because they're going to fear um, uh, revolts and a race war. Jefferson thought the only peaceful way to get rid of slavery was what was known at the time as the dilution or diffusion policy. Let slavery go with their masters into the Western territories, where the masters over time with other free whites would more likely outnumber the blacks and then in the future would have an incentive over time to uh, manumit them, to free them without fear of reprisal. And, you know, Madison was afraid of a race war. Jefferson was afraid of a race war. Jefferson once called it, you know, we, if we freed them, we would be giving them uh, freedom and a dagger. But Jefferson mm -hmm. always said by giving them the dagger, it would be just for them to wreak vengeance. They would, they would be no less just in seeking their freedom than we were uh, uh, when, we, when we declared our own independence. So Jefferson while he stood up for whites in terms of their self-preservation, this is why we don't let go of the wolf, as it were. Uh, you remember, he says, yeah, we have, we, can, we have the wolf by the ear. We can either continue to hold on to him nor let him go. He said this during the Missouri co uh, controversy in 1820. Uh, so we see here that, that Lincoln will cite Jefferson in terms of what he said in the Declaration of Independence and other places with regards to the natural rights of human beings, all human beings. But he wasn't going to... Um, uh, advertised the fact that Jefferson was totally opposed to what Lincoln was in favor of, which is restrict slavery from going into the territories. So in terms of whitewashing, I don't think so. Um, Lincoln is, I think Lincoln safely said uh, that the, the founders intended for slavery to be put on the course of ultimate extinction, given what they actually did. What did they do? Uh, and by, by the way, this is prior to the invention of the cotton gin. This is supremely important that prior to 1791 and 92, the, the general sense was that slavery really wasn't going to last for very long. It killed the soil. Uh, you, uh, unless you were like Washington and a few other astute farmers uh, <laughs> and rotated crops, it was really difficult to continue to especially harvest cotton. Cotton really depleted the minerals in the soil. And so they were hoping that the, that in time that that time would be the most peaceful way, gradual way to uh, eradicate slavery. So what do we see as the founders' actions towards it? And this is what Lincoln um, judged them by: if they couldn't emancipate slaves, or at least chose not to do so immediately, 
They attempted to do so as soon as they could in terms of the supply. So under the United States Constitution, unlike the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, Congress was allowed the authority after 20 years to stop the importation of slaves. Under the Articles of Confederation Congress, there was no um, prohibition on Congress whatsoever. Uh, Excuse me, there was no uh, authority given to Congress to ban slavery. That was left to the states, and some states did. Um, But under the Constitution, the abolitionists, if you will, if we want to call them that, at the convention, wanted the Congress to be able to do that as soon as possible. The slaveholding minority said, no, 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 um, we need to have we need to have time. And so they settled on 1808. And of course, in 1807, the slaveholder Thomas Jefferson, as president, signed into law a statute banning the importation of slaves in 1808. And then 12 years later, it was equated to piracy, which meant the only punishment was, as they put it back then, hanging until dead. So capital punishment off with his head. Um, They put teeth into the bite of the original 1808 law banning the importation of slaves. What else? And also, I want to mention, Lucas. I want to mention too in your book that you mention a really fascinating case that I'd never heard of of Captain Nathaniel Gordon, who was oh yes, yeah, Nathaniel Gordon. Um, Nathaniel Gordon was the only man hanged for the crime of attempting to import slaves into the United States. That was done under uh, President Lincoln in 1862, February of 1862. And it's a a wonderful case because here's a case where uh, this guy had no clue, A, that he would be convicted, B, let alone that he would be, uh, have the book thrown at him. And Lincoln made an example of him. Mm. Other presidents like Buchanan um, faced similar circumstances and no slave trader, American slave trader was ever punished uh, uh, to, to, to the fullest extent. So Nathaniel Gordon actually tries to kill himself in 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 jail um, uh, when he hears that that Lincoln is not going to pardon him. Uh, he actually has petitions to Lincoln sent family members pleading with Lincoln. Fine, he's punished, but why don't you just keep him in prison for life, life mm-hmm. in prison? And Lincoln refuses adamantly refuses to do so. Mm-hmm. But the the one concession he makes is he postpones the sentence for two weeks. So that uh, the said Nathaniel Gordon, as he put it, will have time to uh, get right with his maker, as, as Lincoln puts it, the common God and father of us all. So even in postponing the sentence, he reminds Nathaniel Gordon of the enormity, uh, you know, the horrific nature of the crime that he has been convicted of. You made mere merchandise of human beings, men, women, and children, and you should be reminded that the God who made you made them as well. Woo! So Lincoln had this strong sense of the imago dei, as theologians call it, right? That all human beings are made in the image of God, what we would call today the dignity of man and women. Uh, and women. So uh, yeah, that's a, a very a famous case in a very important year, the year that leads up to his preliminary emancipation proclamation. So the other thing that the founders did, if I can add this, they not only stopped the importation as soon as they, as they could under the United States Constitution, they prevented its expansion, the exact opposite of what Jefferson wanted to do. Now, here, Lincoln's a little clever. I don't know if it's whitewashing, but it is clever that Lincoln points out that in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, hmm. that ordinance passed under the Articles of Confederation Congress and then repassed, reinstituted by the first Congress under the United States Constitution. Actually, it was the second Congress 
what it did is it prevented slavery from being um, inserted into the only territory owned by the federal government at that time, which was the Northwest Territory. Section or Article 6 bans slavery from that territory, territory that included what would eventually become Illinois. Lincoln points out that the first draft of the Northwest Ordinance, I think dating to 1784-85, was drafted by Thomas Jefferson. What he doesn't point out, of course, is that when it was actually uh, passed, in principle, Jefferson actually was against um, the prevention of the spread of slavery because he believed in the diffusion thesis. But Lincoln's point is this. If they chose not to free their slaves immediately for fear of reprisal and instigating a race war, they did what they could to put it on the course of ultimate extinction by preventing its importation, i.e. the supply, and its expansion. And they hoped that it would, in a sense, wither on the vine. Uh, so that so to your question with regards to whitewashing, I think in on the main and on most points, what we find in Lincoln is actually someone who has an accurate sense of the record. And of course, on the margins, um, emphasizing the things that, of course, play to his argument and then minimizing, if not even uh, uh, mentioning, of course, the ways in which, for example, Thomas Jefferson disagreed with Lincoln. Well, one, one way you put it in the book of Lincoln's mastery of the facts of, of the history of the U.S. is he, Lincoln had to do his history well. And apparently he did because he had him, he said the answer for everything that Douglas was, whatever Douglas would say, Lincoln would have a historical precedent or a historical analogy to make that countered sure. it. So, well, um, but, but, but if I can add quickly there, uh, Douglas had a different rendering of that history. And so um, it may be the case that Lincoln was answering him point for point, but Douglas was giving as good as he got. Absolutely. Um, he, yeah. he so he, he, he would, he would say, no, 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 the founders actually did this. And if you want freedom to spread, notice what they did here and what, notice what they didn't do here. So it really was, interestingly enough, they were making American history, not so recent American history, but within a few generations, they were making a, a, an interpretation, a rendering of, a, of American history, the history of the founding, a politically relevant consideration with regards to um, near-term policies, especially with regards to the most divisive issue of the day, well, what Lincoln called the great behemoth of danger, slavery and its future in the country. Yeah, I think one strength of the book is it brings Douglas to life. And I really didn't know much about him except as a foil to Lincoln. So, But you make him an interesting thinker in, in his own right and, and quote from his writings and his speeches and how and how he would get, he, he, he triggered a personal, a personal challenge of intellect, not just political uh, battle. And mm-hmm. it seemed to me that was really fascinating. Um, Thank you. On the on the subject of of great men uh, and uh, uh, of, the, of the titans of the time, uh, you have an you discuss Lincoln and the founders. We also have some interesting sort of preliminary setting the scene of who, who what the other figures of the date just before the generation of Lincoln and Douglas. And you write that Lincoln was influenced. Well, I'm, I'm just I write actually. You, you I'm, I'm quoting myself. You're saying. He it was influenced by Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, and John Adams. And Adams was an ardent opponent of slavery, whereas the two, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, were much more willing to compromise. So I was interested that Lincoln found arguments where he could find them. But I was I was surprised that Lincoln admired Clay so much because he was called the great compromiser. And Lincoln, in his when he became president, was adamant that there is no time for compromise. There is no. There is no moral mm-hmm. argument at this point for compromise. And I wanted to ask, 
was was it what made Lincoln so different from Clay? Was it moral character, or was it just that Lincoln's hand was forced by Fort Sumter in a way that Clay's was not? Yeah, um, let let me recap this briefly. Uh, when I say John Adams, I of course mean John Quincy Adams. John Quincy. Uh, they were yeah, they were both alive at the same time. And in fact, when John Quincy Adams basically died on the floor on the floor of Congress, Lincoln was actually a congressman at that time. Um, we don't have any correspondence that uh, that I know of, anything extant from Lincoln uh, between them. Uh, but it's um, clear that Lincoln was influenced by uh, Adams's devotion to the Declaration and Adams Adams making that an important um, historical uh, charter, if you will, of American liberty. And so um, I, do, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Lincoln... Um, imbibed a lot of that from what he heard or read of John Quincy Adams, even though we don't have Lincoln, ver, you know, um, verbatim quoting from John Quincy Adams. But in, in a way, as my great teacher, Harry Jaffa put it, uh, when at, when John Quincy Adams died, he essentially passed the baton implicitly uh, to Lincoln because Lincoln continued to carry the torch uh, hmm. for the importance and in fact, the political relevance of a document that technically is not a legal document, right? Unlike the constitution that actually governs. The Declaration of Independence is a work, uh, you know, it's a statement of principle mm. and, uh, you know, a condemnation of, of King George III in Parliament. It isn't a, a charter of, uh, you know, legal rights per se. It's a charter of natural rights. Um, but on the, on the subject of Clay and Webster, but especially Clay, well, we have to remember both Clay and Lincoln are, Lincoln's home state is Kentucky. He is mm. an immigrant to Illinois, but Kentucky is his birth state and Kentucky is a slave state. And what Lincoln admired of Clay was precisely that even though Clay was a slaveholder uh, his entire life, um, Clay heroically attempted at various points in his political career, attempted to get his own state to adopt a policy of gradual emancipation. And he was unsuccessful in doing so. And Lincoln gives this masterful eulogy in 1858, um, July, I think, 6th. Um, uh, to Clay, uh, where he points out the things that he likes about Clay. And of course, it's not a coincidence the things that he likes about Clay um, uh, are, are strikingly those sorts of things that Lincoln becomes known for later. Uh, and so I, I think you're right, though, to observe that, interesting, that Lincoln, someone we think is a man of great principle, and I believe that is true, um, yet Clay is not known as, uh, um, not that he, he lacked principle, but Clay is more known for being the guy who can bring parties together. Uh, but as Lincoln points out in his eulogy, Clay could not have made those compromises. He couldn't have secured, especially preserving the union, uh, without being a man of a particular party. He didn't pretend that he was above the fray. Uh, in other words, that he didn't need uh, the Whig party as a vehicle for accomplishing his political objectives. But you're right, at the end of the day, and especially later in his life when it counted, he was more willing to make concessions to this, what is known as the slave power than certainly Lincoln was willing to do 10 years later. But I think when we get into the weeds there, it's kind of a bit of apples and oranges there because the situation in 1850 and 49 um, is, a, is, is in some significant ways different than in 1860. Uh, but the seeds were set, definitely sown um, in, in 1850, especially um, when when um, Clay achieves, almost achieves, I should say, his last great compromise, which was what we call the, the Compromise of 1850. But he actually failed in doing that. It was Stephen Douglas who was able to cobble that 
not cobble it, he was able to take it apart and have the various provisions of the 1850 Compromise, which should be known as the Compromise Measures, plural. He, uh, Douglas, Lincoln's nemesis, not Clay, was able to get each piece of that passed with separate coalitions in the House and Senate. Well, one, two aspects of Clay, I think, that are interesting I'd like to ask you to address is that, well, one was his appeal, two, two, two aspects of Clay, that he, he, he felt that to be, I'd rather be right than president, meaning I'd rather be morally correct, as I read it. And that probably appealed to Lincoln. And the other aspect of was that he was a great um, th- thinker, I mean, in terms of, of, of strategy, that, and Lincoln certainly had to do, do that, a lot of that, in terms of, of just ne- navigating these very treacherous waters. And maybe that appealed. What, is, do you see his, his, the, those aspects of Clay is, is appealing to Lincoln? And also, Lincoln, well, one aspect that was different, too, that Lincoln seemed to believe that a, a Black man could be his, uh, his equal in a way that Clay did not. That Clay just was without now. No, they're 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 just they're they were too different. Whereas Lincoln saw the humanity of, of African Americans much more clearly than Clay seemed to. Have. I, I throw a lot at you, but yeah, he did, uh, and I think that's that's true. The more you read of Clay, and I've read a few months ago, I was at a colloquium, a weekend colloquium, where we just looked at uh, we looked at a little bit of Andrew Jackson and a lot of Clay, and um, I learned a lot about Henry Clay reading the these things, and Clay was was. Um, much more uh, disparaging of the character of black people than certainly we see in Lincoln. You're right about that. And Lincoln, of course, uh, doesn't mention that. He, it's, it's only, it, he doesn't give us an unvarnished clay, that's for sure. Uh, and so, but, but Lincoln did, like Clay, believe that in order to preserve peace in the American Union, over the, the race question, Lincoln did not think, at least at the time, given the prejudices of whites, he did not think that they could peacefully coexist um, uh, uh, in, in the United States. And, and therefore, he, for the longest time, until the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln, like Clay, was in favor of colonization. It, that is to say, um, uh, uh, the, the word they used at the time was deportation, even though it was never, in Lincoln's mind, a compelled thing. It had to be voluntary. But Lincoln was in favor of of blacks uh, being encouraged to leave the country and to go somewhere, most likely in Central or South America, Central America in particular. Oh, I didn't realize didn't, that. I thought it was back to Africa. So No, Lincoln knew as early as 1854. He's very explicit in his great Peoria address in 1854, which is what brings him back into politics uh, in response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act earlier that year. Lincoln is very explicit that if, if they were sent to Liberia, they would, you know, you know, it would be uh, unviable that, that many would die within within days. Lincoln knew that Liberia was a pipe dream. Uh, and but but to show you the seriousness with which Lincoln took colonization, he actually um, uh, encouraged Congress to fund some efforts towards um, a black colony being set up in basically what is Panama today. So Lincoln for and Lincoln, you know, uh, was persuaded by Clay in that respect. And again, it, but unlike Clay, uh, Lincoln did not believe that um, uh, sending blacks away was based on their in- natural inferiority. Not at all. He thought that they could govern themselves and achieve for themselves and fulfill their ambitions in an environment where they weren't constantly under the harassment of prejudiced whites 
It was the classic, you know, it's not you, it's me <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and so in that sense, both Lincoln and Clay, uh, along with uh, Madison, for example, uh, believed in um, colonization. So, but back to your point about I'd rather be right than president. Um, Lincoln never quotes that. And oh, so, really? it's interesting. no, he, he never, he never, um, he never stated that. Uh, uh, and, and of course, in Lincoln's mind, um, there was a country he would not be willing to be president of. In other words, in, in, in the, for example, in the eulogy to Clay, he said one of the great things about Clay was he loved his country not only because it was his, but because it was free. In other words, it was it. devoted to freedom. It wasn't completely free. Obviously, we had three to four million slaves, enslaved black people. Uh, but what he liked about Clay was that Clay understood that black people did have natural rights. And so what Lincoln was trying to get people to understand, and what's harder for us to understand is Lincoln couldn't promote, for example, the vote, the franchise for black people in an era where whites were, you know, was, uh, uh, you know, color bigotry was pervasive. And so what Lincoln had to remind people was, he says, he would say, basically he said, you know, in your heart of hearts that blacks are human beings and they're equal to you in these fundamental natural respects. When people were beginning to, to kind of lose their bearings on that, that point, that's where Lincoln thought the country was in danger and that the trend was not good, that we were actually going off the rails as a country. And essentially, the, the nation was becoming a, a country he did not recognize. And in that sense, Lincoln, uh, I, would, I would propose, would rather be right than president. But he did everything he could in 1859 and 1860, even before he was a declared candidate. He did everything he could to make sure he did not burn bridges with, if you will, the favorite sons and the supporters of favorite sons in states outside of Illinois. And so if Chase, of course, had to be the favorite son and the and the the for, the, 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 the name on the first ballot for supporters, uh, the delegates in Ohio, Lincoln made sure that he was on good terms with them so that if Chase didn't get the majority, which it was clear he was not going to be because he was associated with abolitionism, um, he, wa- he, w- he wanted to leave his name free to be on people's uh, second or third ballot. And that was the key to his victory. Deny Seward, who was the odds on favorite, deny Seward a majority at the first vote. And then the way would be paved if you played your cards right. And that's precisely what Lincoln did in trying to make the non-expansion of slavery rather than outright immediate abolition as the front burner question for white Americans. Well, yeah, as you said, as you said in the book, you also said just now that he loved his country because it was free. And in the book, you also use the word he loved his country because it was good. Yes. That that was very touching. Uh, Apropos of, uh, well, you you mentioned just now the the Peoria address and you don't really discuss the Peoria address in the book. I wonder if you could give the listeners to to discuss side, but maybe side by side, what was in the Peoria address versus the Cooper Union address. Sure. So um, I do quote, I do quote from uh, the Peoria address, but because I'm, I'm, my book proceeds topically rather than speech by speech. Um, I have a, another book on Lincoln and the role of religion where I actually do look at speeches and, and, and parse them, you know, chapter and verse as it were. This book, I looked, I looked at Lincoln's political thought topically. So for example, in the chapter on the Declaration of Independence, where I break down the particular principles, right? human equality, individual rights. When I get to consent, uh, I definitely draw from the Peoria address. Uh, So for example, Lincoln said uh, at one point, what I do say is that no man is good enough to govern another man with that other's 
without that other's consent. I say that is the leading principle, the sheet anchor of American republicanism. So he said that in Peoria, uh, Illinois, on October of 1854. And what this, I, I would have to say, you know, as much as Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural Address are the K2 and Mount Everest of Lincoln's oratory, <laughs> if I had to pick one speech of Lincoln's that gave the most capacious and comprehensive account of his political thought, it wouldn't be either of those speeches, as great as they are. And the Second Inaugural is just my favorite, far and away. Um, if I had to pick one speech that survives on a desert island, um, it would be the Peoria Address. Um, and it's kind of a not fair fight. I'm comparing two really short speeches to a two-hour speech. But in the Peoria Address, we see the unfolding of Lincoln's understanding of what he calls the spirit of 76 as it's juxtaposed with what he calls the spirit of Nebraska, which is mere government as mere self-interest, pursuing mere self-interest. But in the Peoria Address, what he's trying to teach, again, free white citizens, he's trying to teach them that, yes, it does matter what happens to people who are not free and not and not white. It does matter what we believe will happen and can make happen for black people in territories out west. And so in the Peoria Address, at the time, Lucas, who was he addressing at the time? Who had invited who had invited him and what was the. Oh, it was a, it was an anti-Nebraska bill rally, anti-Nebraska Act rally by that point. It's October of 1854, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act has been passed, and essentially popular sovereignty now has replaced the Missouri Compromise policy with regards to the territory that remained um, of uh, the Louisiana Territory north of the 3630. So in 1854, we got to remember, there, there is no Whig party for the most part. But, uh, Lincoln is probably the only Whig in America in 1854. <laughs> he does not become a Republican for two years. So between 54 and 56, people are going to Lincoln. They're going, Lincoln, what, so what are you? Are you, are, you, are you a Liberty Party guy? Are you an abolitionist? Are, we know you're not a Democrat. And how come you're not a Republican? And Lincoln says, I, I, think, I think I'm still a, a Whig. Lincoln is trying to figure out and help shape what will become nationally this thing now known as the Republican Party. And until they coalesce around the doctrine of no extension of slavery into the federal territories, Lincoln is, is not going to identify himself with the Republican Party because, um, let's just put it this way, he sees a difference between abolitionism on the one hand and anti-slavery on the other. Mm. Abolitionism had come to be known as a... a an extremist, fringe, fanatical, social, and now political element in America, extremely divisive, uh, very inflammatory in its rhetoric. And Lincoln thought this is, this is so polarizing, it's actually not helping us uh, remind each other that we're all still Americans here. We're all in, in the same fight. And so Lincoln could be anti-slavery without being abolitionist. Um, he was too devoted to the procedures of the rule of law and constitutional uh, lawmaking to think of himself as an abolitionist. Here's the, the obvious example. One school uh, of abolitionism was led by a guy named William Lloyd Garrison, probably the most famous abolitionist of his day. I would think his only rival would be in popularity uh, would be Frederick Douglass, a, a former protege of his. William Lloyd, William Lloyd Garrison was the editor of The Liberator a newspaper he began in 1831. 
And he made it clear that it was his way or the highway. He was a moral suasionist. He thought that God and 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 he were um, a majority, and you either agreed with them or you know what was the point of compromise. And this was a guy who called the Constitution a covenant with death and an agreement with hell, precisely because it required union with slaveholders. One of the slogans on the masthead masthead of the Liberator was "No union with slaveholders," and he thought free states were aiding and abetting slavery by remaining in a union with slaveholding states. And, and he, literally, and he literally burned the Constitution in a famous... He did, 1850, probably 1854, I think. Um, I think around the, the, the infamous Anthony Burns um, uh, uh, case in, in Massachusetts, a case of an, a, an escaped slave that was apprehended by you know hundreds, if not thousands of, of uh, I think, federal troops. Um, uh, yeah, uh, William Lloyd Garrison burned a copy of the Constitution in public. And Lincoln said, no, 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 you, you can't do that. We are not going to make any political progress if it looks like you are subverting the United States Constitution. Um, and even Frederick Douglass finally came around to that view. Douglass was a moral suasionist until about 1850. And then he comes out most famously in 1852, that great speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, or sometimes referred to as What to the Negro is the Fourth of July. Um, and until the eight, early 1850s, Frederick Douglass was uh, like Garrison. Um, he wanted the Constitution to be shivered in a thousand fragments, as he put it. Lincoln did not want the Republican Party to be identified with that. And so the audience in 1854 is these people who are former Whigs, um, folks known as conscience Whigs, anti-Kansas-Nebraska Act Democrats, uh, Liberty Party members, even some abolitionists. And so it was this party that was fusing or coalescing around something like an anti-slavery policy. But until that congealed, if you will, uh, Lincoln uh, still was beholden to the Whig party. The Peoria address is making the argument that the spirit of Nebraska is anti-American precisely because it teaches people to forget that the fundamental principle of the United States regime is human equality, not uh, the white basis, as, as uh, Stephen Douglas called it. Well, you mentioned that John Quincy Adams was 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 a lover of the Declaration of Independence, which I didn't know. Is that correct? Yes. And, and, and was Lincoln, I was going to ask, was Lincoln unique among American presidents in particular, but among American politicians and focusing on the Declaration or is or was it or was that just common, very common? Um, I don't. I mean, uh, I don't know how common it was because, because for example, S- uh, Stephen Douglas almost never quoted the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was common more. It was certainly common among abolitionists. So even William Lloyd Garrison praised the Declaration of Independence. He hated the Constitution because of the compromises. Lincoln says the only way we understand them as compromises in the Constitution is precisely by reading them through the lens of the Declaration. He thought that the the Constitution and the American Union were, um, as you put it, the pictures of silver that were the frame around uh, the apples of gold, which were um, the principles, especially the principle of equality found in the Declaration of Independence. So the Declaration was a, a document that at least politically was held in great esteem, uh, more so by, um, uh, uh, at least in the mid-1850s and late-1850s, by the Republican Party, guys like Sam and Chase, William Lloyd Garrison, um, guys uh, and others who were, uh, again, uh, may not count themselves as abolitionists, but certainly were anti-slavery. 
Well, you make the point that that um, Lincoln loved. I, I love the like the way you put in the book that he, he admired Washington and Jefferson, but it wasn't so much the founding men as the founding document that he really yes. venerated. Um, one, one, getting to the Constitution it was one thing I learned in your book was I thought that was fascinating was that Lincoln himself was very averse to amending the Constitution. He just was very reluctant to do that, which is kind of a, which is quite ironic considering how extensively just in the few years after his death that it was amended. So to such a, yeah. a, a monumental extent, could you talk about Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, for example? Yeah, and, and as you as you rightly observe, uh, it is interesting that Lincoln, as much as he is devoted to the Constitution, and, and uh, you know, whenever asked about amendments, he's like, "We're better off not touching it." <laughs> I mean, that was it, basically he thought, you know, if it ain't broke, don't don't fix it, and that he was willing, you know, you know, he didn't consider the compromises. Um, uh, uh, I mean, they they were certainly contradictions of human equality, but it didn't break. Um, it, it didn't make the Constitution a broken instrument. He thought that the great good that we were able to achieve, even in the face of those compromises, was worth making those uh, achievements. So there's a burgeoning debate now among historians as to how, you know, how necessary was it really to make these concessions to these minority uh, delegates at the Constitutional Convention, delegates like Yancey from South Carolina and others from Georgia. In other words, why didn't we just call their bluff? Why didn't we say, well, look, if you don't let us touch slavery, we're, you know, we're done with it. You know, go, go back and, and we don't need you. No, the, the, the feeling at the time was the only way we can be independent is if we're unified. And the only way we could be unified is if we make some compromises. And the fundamental one was the compromise over slavery. So what, how, how does it that Lincoln, who is so worshipful of the Constitution, becomes the president who pushes and lobbies for as Daniel Day-Lewis showed us, uh, the 13th <laughs> um, Lincoln did not believe we needed to amend the Constitution to emancipate slaves. The great tragedy, of course, of the Civil War is precisely that it took force, a war, to get rid of slavery. We failed, utterly failed to do so peacefully through the political process. Lincoln did what he could in the 1850s to try to get us back on that track. Southerners wouldn't let him do it. Stephen Douglas wouldn't let him do it. And so um, we had to come to blows. I mean, that's the, I don't think it's commented enough today. Uh, we, we look at the result and presume that it was uh, worth it. And of course it's worth it. If I was a slave, I want to be free. So mm. I praise the Emancipation Proclamation. I praise the 13th Amendment. That doesn't just free human beings. It actually abolishes the institution. Uh, however, the fact that that happened, at least the, the Emancipation Proclamation, the fact that those three to four million were freed by virtue of a military order, not the product of political debate and discussion, that meant that you were imposing justice on people rather than that justice being achieved by their own decision making. And because of that, you see, of course, why Reconstruction ultimately fell short in so many ways, because the justice that was imposed on uh, a great number of white Southerners, they never saw as just. Um, it was manifestly unjust that they were enslaving people who didn't look like them because slavery is wrong for any person. But because it was imposed on them and it wasn't something they chose for themselves, it's no wonder that they were able, once the federal government removed its occupation of the South, it's no wonder that the status quo ante was reintroduced. 
they might have, as it were, been defeated on the battlefield, but they weren't defeated um, in civilian life. And that's, as, as I say, that I don't, it, I don't know that that could have been uh, avoided. I mean, it was, you just had a, a, an entire portion of the American population that was just n- never came around to the idea that they had to get rid of this institution that actually was subversive of their own rights. So, um, well, yeah, the 13th Amendment, he, he called it a king's cure for all evils. It wraps the whole thing up. And so he really needed it passed because he thought that if we didn't change the federal constitution in this respect and in a way that he thought fulfilled the original intentions, if we didn't do it by a constitutional amendment, he wondered whether the Emancipation Proclamation would still hold up in court after the war was over. Because remember, it was passed under a military uh, in a military context, he freed the slaves as a means to a constitutional end, but he worried that it would not be upheld in a, in the Supreme Court. Well, speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, well, actually, I'll go, I'll go back. I'm sorry. When, when in the book, you often you, you discuss the, the the question of of the the, con- the the contradiction in a way between Lincoln's emphasis on self-government with what the, with what you were just discussing with the South felt that it was, they were being imposed, a, a new order was being imposed on them. And I'd like to ask what in the terms of, did, did Lincoln use the term self-government and how does it differ in his mind or in general from the terms democracy and Republican government? Yeah, he used all those terms, um, self-government, he used democracy, um, he didn't use, I don't know that he used Republican government very often. Um, and there could be various reasons for that, because after all, the Democratic Republican Party, what we know as the Democratic Party, um, they were known as as Republicans. And, and the Republican Party that grew out of the Whig Party, they were known as National Republicans. So perhaps Lincoln avoided the term Republican, small r, uh, even though he spoke of republics. Uh, because there would be that confusion. Although everybody spoke of the democracy, and, and by that they meant the Democratic Party. So I, I think he used those terms um, interchangeably. He, he famously put in a note to himself um, what, I, what I call the political golden rule. He, he put it this way, that the fundamental, the, the principle of the United States was as follows. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. Uh this is my it's something like this. Uh, this is my definition of uh, and, he, and he said democracy. So um, he meant by that, of course, that no person was the natural born ruler of anyone but himself. He thought that was the the clear teaching of the Declaration of Independence. So for, for on my reading, he those terms he used um, uh, interchangeably. Well, one of the things in terms of his his power of persuasion on this on topics such as this is that you chronicle. In great, interesting, fascinating detail. I didn't realize that Lincoln, after the election, November in November 1860, and then in those days the inauguration wasn't until March, that he made this very slow progress across the country and gave a series of speeches. And you write, he was very canny that he, you write, Lincoln suspected that any new statement from him would be simply misconstrued and exacerbate the national crisis. He therefore decided not to give any speech clarifying his positions on slavery, secession or the fugitive slave law before his March 4th inauguration. What what was he talking about? He was giving a series of speeches. So he wasn't talking, there were certain things that were 
untouchable. He just didn't want to get into them because he didn't want to tip his hand. But what was he talking about? Who was he reach? Who was he addressing at that point? Because at that point, had he given up any any hope of persuading the South? They were just they were just a dead letter to him, and that he had to solidify that the North. Is that correct? Or? Well, he he certainly was at that point, right? And you're right. Uh, between uh, no, early November and March fourth, I mean that's a good number of months. What historians refer to as secession winter. Hmm. Um, oh, he had to introduce. Yeah, he, he had to, um, and, and B- James Buchanan had already declared that he was only going to be a one-term president. Um, he was only going to serve one term. Um, and he was not very helpful to Lincoln uh, during that period of time, except for saying uh, in, his, in his State of the Union address, which at that time was, was always in the first week of December when Congress would reconvene, he, he made two things clear. He said, secession is unconstitutional. It is not a legitimate political act by citizens or states. But then he added, but as a president and, 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 uh, or as Congress, we can't do anything about it. Over to you, Lincoln. <laughs> so so Lincoln, Lincoln liked the fact that Buchanan explicitly said secession was illegitimate. And he, he drew from Andrew Jackson in making that conclusion. But he also went on to say, as president, I, there's nothing I can do. Uh, and if you ask my opinion, I don't think there's anything Congress can do. And of course, Lincoln clearly disagreed with that, as we find out. Um, so during that time, what is Lincoln doing? Um, yeah, he thinks on the one hand, he says, my goodness, I have spoken on the subject of slavery, on the subject of the federal territories, uh, on the subject of, uh, union so many times. And in his mind, so consistently that unless you are willingly looking for contradiction or implications that aren't there, all you need to know about my principles and policies are already a matter of the public record. And so if I were to, and this is what he said in many letters to people, he said, I know people want to hear from me, but if I say anything new now, rather than simply repeat myself, they're going to say, ah, here it is. The real Lincoln is coming out. And so as he reminds them at the beginning of his first inaugural address on March 4th, 1861, he quotes his first debate at Ottawa, Illinois. Uh, in August of 1858, with regards to lacking any power to touch slavery where it exists, nor having the inclination to do so. And then in the very next paragraph, he quotes the Republican Party platform. And guess what it says? The rights of states (laughs) to control their domestic institutions. Gee, I wonder what institution he's referring to. Slavery. So he says, not only am I already on the record, with regards to what I'm going to do as a Republican president with regards to slavery, even the party at which I am the now head of, we have both said we do not believe we have the authority to touch slavery where it exists. We did campaign on restricting slavery from entering the federal territories, and we won an election on that very issue. So he basically opens his first inaugural address with nothing to see here, In other words, I'm already on the record. And if you are a person of goodwill and are candid and honest, you have to admit I'm already on the record with regards to the very things you guys are worried about. Now, to your question, what did he say in Mm -hmm. all those speeches? Those speeches were very short. But what I thought and found most intriguing, in addition to him stating generally that he was going to essentially perpetuate what Washington began, which was a union devoted to the liberties of the people. So preserving the union and a union devoted to liberty, 
those those were themes that he repeated over and over again. But I got to say, what my probably my famous my famous my favorite speech isn't even the one that he says at Independence Hall where he brags about the Declaration of Independence and I've never had a feeling politically that didn't come from the Declaration. Is a speech he gave the day before in, if you will, hostile territory, Democratic territory, Douglas territory, and this is Trenton, New Jersey. New yeah, Jersey I that was, was the, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. New Jersey was the only state that divided its electoral votes. It divided them four for Lincoln and three for Douglas. Lincoln ran the table in terms of all the northern states and California. It was a close vote in California, but he won California. He ran the table and got all the votes of all the free states except for New Jersey. And in New Jersey, he split them with Douglas. And in the state capital in Trenton, he recognized that most of the people there were not Republicans. And still, what did they do? They honored and respected him as the constitutional president of the United States. He called public notice to that. He knew this would be reported in the press. And at the end of his two paragraph speech, he says, I know that you guys did not think I was the man for the job. And yet you still had this reception for me. What is who's his audience there? His audience is the South. His audience is Virginia, which has not seceded yet and borders the Capitol. His audience are those four um, remaining slaveholding states, um, uh, Arkansas, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, and I think Tennessee. I forget who, what the four, the four that were, were had not seceded yet. They don't secede till Lincoln calls out the militia in April after the fall of Fort Sumter. What Lincoln says to them is, look at these Democrats, just like you. You guys voted for Breckinridge or Bell. Or some of you voted for Douglas. None of y'all voted for me. But look at what these guys are doing. They are behaving themselves, i.e. they're acting like good Americans, self-governing, self-controlled Americans. And as I put it to my students, republics require two things, good winners and good losers. He was essentially saying, look at these Democrats, how good losers should behave. And essentially saying good losers don't secede. Good losers don't say heads I win, tails you lose. And he wanted to advertise, publicize, if you will, glorify the example of Democrats who voted for Douglas, but said under the Constitution, Lincoln is our president. They didn't, they they weren't resistance, you know, uh, advocates. They didn't say not my president. Confederates, secessionists said not my president. And Lincoln yes, I'm said, afraid I kept thinking of 2016 and the upcoming presidential election. You got that right. Lincoln said, we cannot afford people who say not my president. If I can add one thing here, what did the Republicans themselves do it by way of example? In 1856, they ran their first candidate, Fremont, John Fremont, very famous, very popular guy. He came close on the Republicans' first opportunity to, be, to elect a president he was short, I think, in Illinois, in Pennsylvania, maybe one other state, maybe Indiana. And that gave notice to the Democrats in the South. Wow, if these guys run the table, they could actually become president without a vote from the South. But here's the important thing. When the Republicans lost, and Buchanan, the doe from uh, Pennsylvania, doe meaning a guy, a northern man of Southern principles. When Buchanan won, Republicans didn't say, not my president. They didn't preach resistance. They mm. said, okay. He's our president, but guess what we're going to do? We're going to talk. We're going to hold rallies. We're going to try to shape public opinion so that at the next election in two years and the next election at that, after that in four years, we're going to try this thing again. That is the American way. And what happened? 
Each of those elections, Republicans grew in their representation at the state and at the national level so that the second bite of the apple in 1860, they actually win. Fair is fair. Democrats now, turnabout is fair play. Democrats should act like the Republicans did in 1856. So in so many words, this is what Lincoln was doing. He was reintroducing himself to uh, the North, the loyal North, and also trying to persuade um, pro-union but pro-slavery states like Virginia that they don't have anything to worry about a Republican administration. For the citizens of the seven seceded states as of March 4th, his hope was as things calmed down that they would return to the union. That was his hope, and he wasn't trying to give them any more fuel uh, to, to fire their secession um, actions. Well, I, I, I hope that every American will read your book between now and the election and, and the months ensuing after it, because it will be it's a very worthwhile and sobering lesson about magnanimity and, and reconciliation and moving forward rather than uh, engaging in recrimination acrimony. And, Thank uh, you. This, uh, yes, it's, it's really it's really very moving about his about his his spirit of, of reaching out to others. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Lucas E. Morell, author of the book, Lincoln and the American Founding. One fact in your book that I thought was quite interesting, just in terms of, of Lincoln's use of language, was that he tended not, you point out that he tended not to use the word founders, preferring, he preferred to use the terms fathers and framers. Why, why was that? And do you follow him in that? And if, if you do, why, why is that? What, what is the difference between those three terms? Yeah, and I honestly did not know this until I actually uh, started digging in the weeds a little more. I said, you know what? I'm calling this book Lincoln and the American Founding. How often did he use founding or founders? And it turns out he used it maybe a handful of times, but he uh, he more often, when speaking of the Constitution, he would speak of framers because that's what you do to design a Constitution. You frame it. But the most common term he used was fathers. And most famously, of course, as you started this uh, broadcast with, uh, the first line of the Gettysburg Address, he spoke of fathers, our fathers mm-hmm. brought forth. Um, why did he use fathers? Uh, we were at that time a Bible reading nation, and it's a common locution in the Old Testament. Um, the fathers, our fathers, right? The patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and so um, fathers in the Old Testament and fathers in the New Testament. So a, a generally, at least culturally speaking, Christian country, the the to, to use the term of fathers, is one that was part of the lingua franca. It's, it's just the way people spoke uh, much more reverently about the past, w- much more reverently about their elders and things old, if you will, generally speaking, uh, and things old fashioned than we do today. Today, we our, our predilection is if it's new, it must be improved. Uh, in Lincoln's day, no, 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 the new required an argument. If it was old and, and was still being practiced or believed, it was thought to be tried and true. We tried well, it. You, it you works, mentioned Daniel Webster. You mentioned Daniel Webster's veneration for the for the framers in 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 your book of the that was interesting that Lincoln liked that particular aspect of Webster's thought. Yes, yes. So one thing I point out is that we can go back as far as even Jefferson used the term fathers, although because he's part of the revolutionary generation, he didn't mean it in reference to himself. He meant it in reference to the Pilgrims and those who came over uh, the pond, as it were, to come to America. But most of the presidents before Lincoln spoke of the fathers, and in doing so, speaking of the founding generation. And so um, what, what I find fascinating about Lincoln is even though father and fathers is a term dealing with family and blood, you know, uh, a, a direct lineal descent, 
And Lincoln could trace his heritage in the United States back to um, the 1700s in Virginia, in fact. He thought what was wondrous and fascinating about America is to be American wasn't a thing of blood. It had nothing to do with your last name. It was, we are, as it were, a creedal nation, as, as King put it in the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, you know, I have a dream deeply rooted in the American dream, right? It's the American creed. All men are created equal. Lincoln thought, wow, in this country, what makes you American isn't what you look like, isn't uh, where your parents were born. What makes you American is what you believe, what you understand about yourself and your neighbor and fellow citizens, that there is something in the midst of tremendous diversity, to be sure, there is something more fundamental, and that's our humanity, our equal humanity, that we're born, uh, as I say, you know, in the image of God, the imago dei, and and as a uh, members of a created uh, universe and, and world and order, we understand that God made us all in some fundamental respects the same. We are equally endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's because of that equal endowment, we are able to rule ourselves and not anyone else without their permission. So we get from that equality, the principle of government by consent. And so it's these sorts of principles that Lincoln thought, wow, this is what unites a free people. This is the understanding of themselves that they cannot lose. That's crucial to perpetuating the institutions of government, which is to say, when you get guys like like John Calhoun later or Jefferson Davis or Alexander Stevens or Stephen Douglas, when they lose sight of or misunderstand what the fathers meant when they said all men are created equal, you don't even have to change a comma of the Constitution to change how that Constitution is going to be administered. You will turn a tool of freedom into a mere instrument of crude majority rule. And when that has happened, uh, woe be the person who ends up in the political minority, because there will be no respect for your rights in that situation. You will only think that you will be protected by government if you happen to be on the side of the majority. And I fear we are moving more and more in that direction as a country. You mean you yourself now, or do you mean Lincoln at the time? I myself now think this at oh. the time. What I mean, what are the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, the Merrick Garland um, the last election, presidential election, and this upcoming one. What are these? What do we? What do they all have in common? Right? Um, everybody says, you know, and it's it's a commonplace. Every election is the most important election of our lives. Blah blah blah. But why do you think those those events, especially for the Supreme Court, why do you think those took on such world historic proportions for Americans? Because they believed if their person didn't get appointed, then their rights will not be protected. If they find themselves in the minority, as it were, they fear that the winners won't be, as I put it earlier, good winners. And so in that event, they're going to be good. They're going to be bad losers, if you will. They're going to preach resistance. They're going to say, not my president. And I'm, I'm, I, I fear that, that that kind of mindset is taking hold of more and more people. And I am hoping and doing what I can uh, as an instructor and just as an engaged citizen, I'm doing what I can to try to speak about political matters publicly in a way, uh, if you will, seasoned with 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 grace and charity uh, uh, as best as I can, so that at the end of the day, whoever's in the majority um, is not going to look at the minority as the enemy, but as possessing rights that they too have um, uh, a, a legitimate expectation to be protected in common with those in the majority. 
Well, as you speak, I know that you were, a, a, I believe, a visiting scholar at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. And as you were speaking about not thinking of at Princeton University, and that's led by Robert E. George. And I know that he and Cornell West often speak about that, of not thinking of of our, our people who disagree with us enemies, that they emphasize yes. that over and over and over. And I, I envy you your chance to be at the James Madison program. I'd love to, if I were a scholar of great note as you are, I would love to be there. Well, I mean, I'd love to be there now as well. I'm actually on sabbatical this year, but I'm not up at, at Robbie George's uh, Madison program this time. I was a fellow in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I, I did have the privilege of, of, of being up there with a lot of other really smart people, um, and getting to know Robbie George and uh, um, and, and many other people there uh, who are doing great work. Um, this sabbatical, I'm, I'm staying in, in West Central Virginia in Stanton, where I live, and um, doing my work from here, or working on my next book called Lincoln, Race, and the Fragile American Republic. I wish I could hit the print button on it now. <laughs> but, uh, it's <laughs> That's gonna, right. It's going to be uh, two to three years before this guy's uh, uh, ready for public consumption, but that's that's on the front burner right now. Well, unfortunately, maybe even more timely as things get so heated and, and degenerate yeah. into ever more acrimony. It might be perfectly timed. Unfortunately. I hope. <laughs> yes, or actually, it would be that would be fortunate. And and uh, so and uh, I'm trying to think of the word worth uh, just something everyone should read. Required reading, I guess. Is I'm, wor- I'm hoping that what I. Yeah, I hope that what I, what I turn up is something that is not just of historic or, or scholarly interest, but something that is relevant and germane to the issues that we're we're uh, facing right now. Well, that's very that's very helpful that you that you mentioned what you were working on next because that's usually the last question in the in the interview ah. on New, New Books Network. But I I had one or two more questions if you don't I'm mind. I'm game. Let's go. Uh, well, I, well, I was once one in, in terms of we were talking about the the, the dangerous escalation and rhetoric in our own time, and Lincoln. I was surprised to learn in your book that Lincoln in his day actually said that he would rather be assassinated on the spot than surrender the liberty described in the Declaration of Independence, and that's quite quite a startling statement. That just as just as Martin Luther King foresaw his own death by violence. Yeah. It's, it's I, I did I, not realize that Lincoln that Lincoln feared. I know that he had obviously protection in the famous Alan Pinkerton. I believe it was Alan Pinker, the yes. Secret Service. But um, I didn't realize that as that that he that he himself spoke of it. I thought people were concerned for him, but I didn't realize that he himself was concerned for his safety. Both are true, and I think the only reason why he uttered that out loud was precisely because the closer he got, it um, they really did fear what's the, what's known as the Baltimore plot. The and he had to sneak into the Capitol, and unfortunately, that made public news as well. And they made caricatured him in the in the newspapers and made fun of him, mocked him for for coming in under disguise, as it were. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there there were considerable threats um, that were being um, um, planned, and uh, it was Lincoln's way of saying how devoted he was to the uh, fundamental aim of the regime. He tried to see. So remember, uh, he had just won a presidential election, an election where the various campaigns had to paint a picture of the future of the country. And in order to do that, they had to explain why they needed to be a country. What was the purpose of union? And Stephen Douglas had an answer to that. John Breckinridge had an answer to that. Bell had an answer to that, as nebulous as it was. 
And Lincoln had an, an answer to that. And essentially what the Republicans were putting before the country and also the Democrats, the two factions, were a, a vision of what they thought union meant, what union entailed, what is the purpose? What if, as, as we like to say today, what is our mission statement? And for Lincoln, to preserve union and forget liberty is to make the Constitution and union more important than the Declaration of Independence. And he thought that that put the, the cart before the horse. Uh, we really had to come back to an understanding that government exists to protect liberty. And in so doing, this would be the beginning of the end of slavery, that we had to come to that conclusion. Even in the South, they had to recognize that maybe not in the near term, but in the long term, they, they themselves had to concede that slavery in order for freedom to survive, we had to get rid of slavery or what we were doing, we're training ourselves to become future tyrants. Well, related to that, you, you, you mentioned that, that some people would, in terms of Lincoln's devotion to the Union and the Constitution, and I guess that I would, I don't know if you could address that uh, question of if they're synonymous, the Constitution and the Union, but you just, you say, Describing Lincoln as a constitutionalist, this is this is from the book, describing Lincoln as a constitutionalist will surprise critics who believe he bent or broke the Constitution in his efforts to preserve the Union. And I'd like to ask, what actions of Lincoln did those critics cite in their indictment in particular? And also I'd like to ask, when it comes to civil, the protection of civil liberties during wartime, how does Lincoln stack up next to Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt? Is his record better or worse than theirs in terms of actually imprisoning fellow Americans? Right. Those are those are those are massive questions, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, the first point, uh, Lincoln is a constitutionalist. Well, the number one thing I believe that people bring up is his suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, uh, the famous case of Ex parte Merriman, uh, which takes place, uh, good grief, r- r- almost at the outset of the war in April of 1861. Um, uh, what happens is that there are um, routes that troops um, from, for example, um, the New England states, Massachusetts, and uh, elsewhere, there are routes to the capital that are being populated by mobs that are, of course, anti-Lincoln, anti-Union, um, especially in Maryland, in Baltimore in particular. And those are areas where it's unlikely that if you jail somebody In certain instances, it will be tough for you to prove that they actually committed a particular crime. And if you can't do that, you, of course, have to release them. Um, uh, And in other places, you will not get a favorable jury. Uh, They won't convict somebody who actually did commit an explicit crime on the books. And so Lincoln did empower his generals to suspend the the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. Uh, In other words, they don't have to present the body, um, as the, the Latin goes, they don't have to, to take that person in front of a judge and say, this is the, the, this is the statute that was violated, we believe, and therefore we're going to charge him with such and such crime. Um, so um, uh, uh, Lincoln does not get from Congress official permission to suspend the writ for another two uh, years. I think it's 63, may have 63 or 64, probably 63, where Congress actually explicitly says the president can do this. But of course, Lincoln isn't going to wait for that. Lincoln also um, jailed certain newspapers for printing um, uh, false information or information that was encouraging um, people to uh, resist the draft, Um, trying civilians in uh, military tribunals, especially in areas that were away from um, battlefields, et cetera. And so um, he was 
he or and, and a lot of times I have to admit um, or I have to hasten to add that a lot of times Lincoln found out about this stuff after the fact hmm. and was trying to clean things up and doing the best he could um, after finding out what people had done. Although the the habeas he did um, that he, that did come from him uh, directly, and he had to explain in his um, uh, message to Congress in special session, July fourth, eighteen sixty one. He spends um, uh, a few paragraphs explaining to Congress why he did not think it was um, wrong for him as president to do something that most people thought only Congress could do. So um, Lincoln, what what I like about those sorts of speeches is Lincoln at least draws the attention of the American people to the standard by which he believes his actions should be judged, which is the Constitution. So at the end of the day, you could disagree with Lincoln and you could say, well, hmm, interesting, Lincoln, you took us to Article 1, Section 9 on that. My reading of that is Congress has that authority, not the president. At least that's a fair fight. At least it's a debate uh, where we both acknowledge, or at least Lincoln is inviting them to acknowledge that the Constitution is the standard. It's not just a mere dictate, a fiat uh, rule by a, a an executive. Um Comparing him to Wilson in FDR, I don't know that the American people know the extent to which uh, uh, people were imprisoned uh, yeah. for their uh, contrary opinions with regards to, especially the war effort uh, for for both of those men. And um, I don't, I'm, I'm insufficiently schooled in uh, the ways in which that actually occurred. But um, I have have grown. Uh, I have come to learn that a lot more of that happened than we than certainly we read about in the history books. And of course, uh, in many cases, um, even up to, you know, George um, W. Bush, uh, many le- look back and uh, rely on Lincoln as a precedent for doing the things that today people raise their eyebrows at or, or worse. So um, we, we would need to have another session <laughs> devoted to explaining uh, the the how Lincoln uh, bears on those. I think Lincoln had. I'll, I'll put it this way: certainly with Woodrow Wilson and FDR, uh, I think it would be easy to show that Lincoln had a much higher respect for the Constitution than either of those men did uh, to justify uh, the actions they took. Hmm. That's that's an interesting point. Well, one one of the re- one of the reasons I ask about uh, the matter of well. You discuss in the book mob rule, and I'm 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 an Oregonian, and we're experiencing in Portland, as you know, a, a yes, great troubles. And and I just I think of what if would Lincoln have stood by and said, "Oh, that's okay, go ahead and attack a federal building, a, a U.S. courthouse," and I think he would have been appalled. And I just wonder what you what lessons we can learn from Lincoln in terms of civic order and 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 also the sectionalism of this. It seems to be a, a, a Pacific Northwest. Uh, misunderstanding of, of I, I feel like they keep saying, well, this is Oregon, this is Portland's home rule. I think we're, we're also American citizens and people yeah. like Martin Luther King and Thurgood Marshall, they did their business to a large extent in U.S. courthouses. That's where many of the decisions were advancing the rights of African-Americans were, were made. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. Um, certainly Thurgood Marshall. In fact, Thurgood Marshall uh, was a, a, a little in tension with King be- precisely because Marshall thought that the heavy lifting was done in courts, not in the streets. Mm. So, for example, the bus boycott of, of Montgomery, which, of course, King and, and Rosa Parks were so famously associated, um, that ended after over a year of the boycott, not because the boycott was successful. It ended because the Supreme Court <laughs> told them that, that Montgomery mm. had to deal 
segregate their buses. So Marshall counted that as a victory and didn't like the fact that King was getting the credit. Uh, he, he considered King, I mean, I'm, I'm putting a fine point in this, too fine a point probably, but he thought King was a bit of a rabble rouser, that, that the street demonstrations were not the way, certainly not the tried and true American way of getting justice done. That if you wanted to change the law, which was precisely what was needed, the equal protection of the law for black people equally with whites to have their lives, liberty, and property protected, that had to be the product of law and courts, not street protests and demonstrations, as important as those are and uh, rights that people certainly have. In terms of of Oregon and and Washington, we have to include Minneapolis as well because Mm -hmm. of the street mobs that I have seen there. I mean, talk to to, uh, Mayor Fry about his interaction with government by bullhorn um, and, and that hostile mob that he uh, faced and was fortunate to get out of uh, in one piece. Um, Lincoln, yes, would be would be aghast at what he sees there. And but the fact of the matter is, even during the war, Lincoln would write these letters, these telegrams to governors. Um, there's one to this guy. Uh, I think his name is Mariah Guffin, uh, McGuffin, the governor of, of Kentucky. He said, "You know, I've got all these. You you send me all these complaints about uh, you know the federal you know uh, occupation of your state." Why aren't your own citizens defending themselves? Yeah, <laughs> said, as soon as they defend, embarrassing. it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I'm sorry, I, I missed oh, that. I'm just saying, it's, yes, it's embarrassing to me as an Oregonian that they don't see that the protesters don't see that by blocking a courthouse, you're depriving people of access to the law. And yeah, and, and but, but but even uh, depriving access, but also in your very activity, you're undermining the very rule of law that you purport on a good day. To seek, in other words, at the end of the day, if it's laws that have to be changed, when those laws are passed, don't you want people to obey them? I mean, what was the lesson of Chaz or Chop or whatever that so-called <laughs> autonomous zone? What's the lesson there? Is who on God's earth would actually go there willingly? I mean, that was a Hobbesian uh, state, uh, if ever one existed. Uh, the exactly. absolute absence of the rule of law. I mean, it was only a matter of time till that thing fizzled out, and unfortunately, people died. Uh, uh, and not to mention the others that were, were injured. I mean, good grief. I mean, really, would anyone raise a family or start a business in a place like that? Um, it, it, it showed the absolute absence of civil government, the absence of the rule of law, and therefore the absence of the security for the things that you possess by nature and the product of your liberty, namely your property. So that was, that was a, a lesson that I hope most Americans or more Americans take to heart. Lincoln would write to Baltimore citizens. He wrote to Kentucky citizens and said to them that the federal, the presence of federal troops would be removed as soon as they took care of business themselves. That is to say, as soon as they governed themselves and protected innocent life, there would be no need for federal intervention. Now, I am not saying Lincoln would follow what our current president has done in terms of sending uh, various sorts of, you know, the elements of ICE and Department of Homeland Security, uh, federal marshals, etc. I'm not saying Lincoln would have done it in the way they did it, uh, a way that uh, the President Trump has done it. Uh, what I am saying is that Lincoln uh, was a master of prudence. He hmm. was a master of knowing what the right thing would be to do and then figure out, given the conditions and circumstances, how best to try to promote um, civil order and justice and peace there. So I think there would have been a lot more, um, shall we say, communication between the powers that be. And I mean the literal powers that be, 
mayors, governors, legislatures, et cetera. I'm just thinking if I'm an Oregon citizen uh, or a Washington citizen, um, are these people not talking to their legislators? Do they really uh, not care what is how, how their, their cities are being ravaged? Uh, I mean, it really, at the end of the day, if they're not willing to defend themselves, there's not a whole lot you can do for them. Yeah, it's very, luckily I don't live in Portland, but it's it's certainly distressing. Uh, finally, uh, I, I, I do want to recommend your book, and I wonder if you could recommend books yourself on the subject of Lincoln or any book that you've read recently that you think our listeners might might find of, of, of note. And that would be my yeah, final I, question. Yeah, I would say that um, there's a few questions I always get when I give a talk about Lincoln off campus. And one of them is always, can you recommend a biography or what should I read on Lincoln? In other words, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I get the kind of banal, predictable question. No, they're not banal. I mean, these are important. That shows that the message has been re- delivered and received. In okay. other words, wow, they want more. This is great. So um, the the good news is I always tell people, um, I mean, sure, go out and read my book. But I would think after reading my book, you would want to go read more Lincoln rather than read a Lincoln biography or read another scholarly tome on Lincoln. I think find any good one volume edition of Lincoln's writings. Um, well, the one I, I used in my I had a question on that, Lucas. That one of the, the the wonderful things about your book is that you quote Lincoln himself extensively, and I just wanted to ask: Did you is that all in the public domain, or did you have to do any archival work to 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 find things that are not known, or, or are it's, these? It's in the public domain. University of Michigan has an online. Um, uh, collection. It's called the Collected Works of Abraham Lincoln. Now, I actually have the hard copy bound volumes in my my office, and so I just reach for it. I know this one's in volume four or volume eight. Now, because Lincoln's life was 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 cut tragically short, mm-hmm. um, have a lot of volumes. It's you know nine volumes, including an index plus two supplemental volumes. Um, so there isn't a, you can fit them all in one shelf. Is the good news? Uh, but this index, excuse me, this uh, online. Uh, source, you just Google collected works of Abraham Lincoln, and it is searchable. So if you type in, uh, like you said, a word like Republican with a small r, if you type in Democratic or Democratic Party or democracy or equality, uh, the stuff will pop up. Now, if it's in italics, it won't. So you need to know a few of those little tricks. Um, and it works a lot better when you know uh, where what you're looking for. So it is in the public domain. Uh, so it's all on the internet. and. Um, uh, but uh, Basler, the editor, Roy P. Basler, who edited the collected works, he produced six years earlier in 1946, he produced a one volume edition called Abraham Lincoln, His Speeches and Writings. And, you know, I teach this stuff every year and I always have to augment it with um, other things because Basler's choices are pretty good. Uh, but they leave out a lot, like the Nathaniel Gordon telegram. That's not in there. The letter to Albert Hodges isn't in there. So there's a number of things that I'm interested in that are in Lincoln's hand that aren't in the Basler, uh, but but those I can find. So I would tell anybody, buy, buy a good one volume edition of Lincoln and just start anywhere. <laughs> He's well, such you, a you, mentioned Albert Hodges. you mentioned Albert Hodges and who was he just briefly that Oh, oh my goodness! I'm oh. <laughs> I gotta remember who he was. Um, or, or, I think the, or the he was in Ken, I think he was a Kentuckian. <laughs> the, the point of the Albert Hodges letter is that Lincoln met with some governors and talked about uh, emancipation and union, and Lincoln was trying to explain to them how he got um, how if things have worked out better, 
emancipation wouldn't would have taken a place in a, in a different way. And he was trying to show them that events were, were in, in many cases out of his hands. It's a precursor to the second inaugural address. Hmm. And it's a wonderful kind of um, uh, uh, foreshadowing of what Lincoln is going to say in a more sublime way the following year. So that's not in the Basler. Uh, a lot of some of the stuff that's not in Basler just wasn't discovered yet. So uh, the Hodges, I think he didn't discover till a few years later. And that's actually in the collected works, but that wasn't published till 52 and 53. Now, you still, you know, if you're like, no, 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 Lincoln, what, Lucas, what are good books on Lincoln? Well, we, Richard Carradine's book on Lincoln and humor. Lincoln loved a good, good joke and good stories. This British historian of American religious history, he published a, a book in this same series that I published my book in. And it's called Lincoln and Humor. And, uh, you know, a, a Lincoln, the Lincoln Dean, a Dean of Lincoln Studies today, Michael Berlingame, a good friend of mine, he said that Carwardine's book on Lincoln and humor was the best book on Lincoln published in 2019. So that's high praise. Um, there are good biographies out there. I don't think there is one great biography of Lincoln because for short version is that, that the biographies of Lincoln are not written by political theorists. So they don't have, in my opinion, as deep an understanding of Lincoln's mind as they do of the history and circumstances around his actions. So you have really good biographies by Alan Gelzo, Redeemer President. Richard Carradine has a book called Abraham Lincoln. I think it's called Profiles in Power or something like that. Uh, Brookheiser, Rick Brookheiser's book, Founder's Son, is, is really good. I've used that in class. Um, Michael Burlingame, if you want a 1,400-page a biography of, of, I mean, it, it's got everything. Um, he calls it his green monster. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's that. I mean, but it's, you know, by the kin, the Kindle version, if you will. So, um, you know, the, the Lincoln books proliferate, of course, they come out all the time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, th- those are a few. Well, one last question. And I understand that you're on, I think, I don't know if we mentioned Twitter, but can people find you? People can find you on oh, Twitter yeah. now because yeah. I, I find you on Twitter and I find your tweets very interesting. Yeah. Twitter handle, Twitter's funny. Um, uh, when I first got wind of Twitter, uh, I knew two things. One, I wanted the handle before anybody else got it. And <laughs> I got Lincoln Douglas, one word. So Lincoln and then Douglas with two S's. So two of my heroes, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglas. So at Lincoln Douglas is my Twitter handle. Uh, and I, I tweet on, you know, a number of things. I, I don't usually do a lot of original tweets. I just retweet stuff. But uh, the second thing I knew was that uh, I wanted the handle, but I didn't think I had anything really to say. And I wasn't working the brand, as people say today. So I had the handle for years before I tweeted anything. Hmm. Uh, so I had followers, but I was never tweeting anything, not even retweeting stuff. And well, then I like started to retweet are fine with me because what you consider worth reading and retweet is very helpful to the rest of us. Sure. Yeah. I just didn't do it at the time. So that's my handle, Lincoln Douglas. Um, I teach at Washington and Lee University. So you can Google that and you can find me there. I'm on sabbatical this coming year. Um, and again, working on a, uh, my book on Lincoln and race and uh, we'll see what I turn up. And there are several there are several interviews online with you about the, the book, and everybody should look watch for the, the the reviews in coming months. So, and with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Lucas C. Morell, about his book Lincoln and the American Founding, which I recommend highly. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>